Welcome to the Get Saw Brazilian podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. The conversation today is with Dan Gregory, the CEO of the Impossible Institute, expert on human behavior and engagement, leadership speaker, author, and social commentator. You may have seen him on the Gruen Transfer or other TV shows. He gave one of the best keynotes I've seen in cyber at the ASUS Cyber Conference in 2018. Dan is all about being smart when it comes to human behavior. And in this interview, we talk about humans and cyber, how to work with the fact that employees won't care as much about cyber as we do, the impact of leadership, democratization, i.e. we can't tell people what to do anymore and they can ignore us even if we do, how human trust has changed and how design beats discipline and motivation. Dan was an absolute pleasure to talk with, so over to the conversation. Welcome to the Get Star Brazilian podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Dan Gregory, the CEO of the Impossible Institute, expert on human behavior and engagement, a leadership speaker, author, and social commentator. You would have seen him probably on TV um, and also a keynote speaker at Ausert uh, a few years ago. Uh, great to have you on the show, Dan. It's Gar. Good to be on. So, Dan, the, the, the first question we pretty much ask everybody just as a kind of a, a level set is how did they get to where they are today? Obviously, you spend a lot of time in the media and, and you know, in conferences and leadership uh, with leadership teams. How did, you, how did you kind of arrive at where you are today? Well, to be honest, it was a very indirect route. Um, although I, I often think it, life makes sense in retrospect, but not going forward. And, and that's certainly the case for me. I, so I... Uh, I did very well at school um, in every subject, which made choosing what to do really difficult. It sounds like a good thing doing well at school. It's actually not. Like if you're good at if you're good at woodwork, carpentry is a really easy choice. Um, so for me, I started my university degree. I started an economics degree, studying to be an actuary because I was very good at maths, um, and very quickly realised that wasn't the right path. Uh, and then. I, at, at the time, I was in university and I was working as an editorial cartoonist as well. So I thought, well, maybe that's it. So I ended up doing a communications degree. And the, the, the base of the degree was, was psychology, sociology and philosophy and a whole bunch of subjects I hadn't even considered. And that's really what piqued my interest. Um, and then uh, so I got out of university and started a career in the advertising industry, you know, sort of putting uh, communications and psychology to work. And uh, so I did that for 10 years, and then I travelled the world for about three and a half, four years working as a professional stand-up comedian, and then came back to advertising and uh, started doing uh, The Gruen Transfer, a TV show on the ABC. So um, it was a very uh, roundabout route to to get where I am, Um, but I... uh, yeah, I ended up um, spending the past ten years working as a uh, as a professional speaker and mentor and, and coach, helping people um, understand what motivates them, what drives their team, and what what you know gets their customers to buy and buy in. Yeah, it was such an interesting one um, for me when I saw you on the Ozturk bill. I was like, oh, that's, just, that's kind of an <laughs> interesting. Um, you know, somebody who air quotes isn't cyber wonder what they'll have to say. And, you know, I've sort of said this to many people. It was, I still reckon it was one of the best cybersecurity talks that I've seen so far, believe it or not, even though, you know, in theory, you're not a cybersecurity professional, but the insights to motivation communication, I think is something that we have traditionally gotten pretty wrong in our industry. Um, We've tried to use information as a way to change minds and it just doesn't work. Um, So yeah, it was definitely, um, yeah, interested to see you there. Look, in researching for today's conversation, 
Um, I've read that you and your, your business partner, uh, Kieran Flanagan, believe that all influence begins with insight. And in a recent talk you gave at Connect, you, you also said that we need to assume that they, as in, you know, I suppose employees, don't care as much about cyber as you do or we do. Can you talk us through how those two kind of things interact, influence and insight, and then people just don't care about cyber? Yeah, well, I think that's that's always a good starting point, no matter what kind of influence, you, you know, whether you're a leader trying to influence your team or someone trying to influence uh, customers or community. I think it's a good place to start. Start with the idea that they don't care. Um, because I think it's what, one of the things, you know, just picking up what you said there, Gar, the, the idea that... Um, that we've we, we've tried to persuade people or influence them using information, you know that's not the cybersecurity industry on its own. That's every industry. And one of the one of the the problems with really smart people is they're really intelligent and they think being intelligent is enough. Um, you know, and so they'd rather be right than rich, or they'd rather be right than get a result. And rightness is really appealing, and and you know it's something that I understand as well. You know, I like, you know, at some point, you know, my rightness does tend to become righteousness. And I think we all become a little bit guilty of that on our particular thing, the thing that we love the most. And, and I think one of the things I learned, you know, having been good at school and done really well academically was I got out of school and, and very quickly learned that being the smart kid didn't necessarily lead to success. In fact, sometimes being the smart kid got in the way and sometimes the kids who, who had to be more um, adaptive in, in how they uh, how they built their careers, oftentimes they were more more effective because they you know they understood. I, I, I think business is more like the rules of the schoolyard than the rules of the classroom, and I think that smart kids typically typically understand the rules of the classroom. So my observation is is that that's that's something that shows up in the cybersecurity industry as well. You know, you've got some very very technically brilliant people, um, but they're not very good at managing their biological hardware. You know the, the the people that work with them, and I think one of the problems is we think facts are enough. So if you have a look at things like you know climate scientists, or if you have a look at at uh, you know during the pandemic, you know the the epidemiologists trying to trying to make people do the right thing by giving them facts. Well, that's not how human beings work. Human beings run on 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 stories, not data. And so I think having a, a willingness to to change your communication style in order to be more influential is really important. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. And, and that's sort of, I suppose, the, the leadership style, communication style. One of the things you talk about is, um, you know, behavioral trends and one of them being business modification. And, and you talked about this where you see this democratization, I think was the language you used of leadership, where we've gone away from, hey, you've got to do X, Y, Z, you know, the very directive, telling people what to do, and moving much more, uh, more towards getting buy-in and getting people sort of on the journey and, and sort of bought in. Uh, with cyber, clearly, like, you know, we've spent a long time telling people what to do and actually sometimes, like, what not to do it hasn't worked. Like, specifically, how do you think we should tackle that as a problem? Well, I think one of the one of the issues with cybersecurity is the people in the industry are used to writing instructions in code and then the machine does exactly what they want to want it to do and that's not that's not yeah. how human beings work um and i think the the most important thing or if if there's there's one thing you take away i think rather than making people care about what you care about demonstrate how what you care about serves what they care about in other words the more coming back to this point about all influence begins with insight the more you understand about person you more the more you understand what motivates them what drives them what's truly important to them 
the more influence you're able to have with them by aligning, you know, your value with their values. So if I have a real sense of what really truly matters to you, I can I can be really influential by linking to that as opposed to making you you care about something that's completely separate from your world. That, that sort of disconnection you see, I think, quite a lot. One of the things that um, uh, in our industry that you have, you're supposed to do for ISO certification is do things like send an email every month, uh, you know, a security missive. Um, and I'd love to see the open rates for those kind of comms because I don't think anybody ever reads them. You know, they're written, it's heavily text. It's a lot of very detailed technical jargon quite often. And you're sending those to... The open rate for a lot of emails is going to be very low. I mean, yeah. we, we know from any kind of email marketing that the, that the, the hit rate's very low. But, but I think that's a really good. I think that's a really good question. Is rather than we we tend to think of communication as as transference of information. You know, I so I I communicate to you, Gar. There's some kind of. Uh, a static or interference, you know, we're using a, you know, a technical device at the moment to talk to each other, then you filter it through your biases and your, your perceived, uh, your filters of perceived meaning. Then you translate that into meaning. Then you feed back to me and that goes through further. That we tend to think of a very linear um, model of, of communication. I think a better model is, and this, you know, I saw this, uh, a student I was at university uh, with, created this this model of communication and using she was a she was a, a single mom and she had she had kids at home so she 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 made the model on some cardboard using cotton wool and some pens and some you know straws and stuff and basically what she did was she had a field or, or like a pen full of sheep and then a gateway called meaning and this idea that it's not about to and fro communication but rather taking a group of people towards a shared sense of meaning I think that's a better model or a better understanding of communication and oftentimes we think well I sent out the email I sent out the information I've given them the data you know communication done tick and I don't think that's a really useful metric I think a better metric is is not just open rate is it, it's comprehension rate you know have have they understood what's what's being required and have I chosen the best tool or the best medium to communicate to them with and is there something there like just to kind of go a little bit further than that, whereas, you know, measuring kind of comprehension, but also behaviors, like watching what does that actually translate to in a business? You know, are, are you seeing people do the wrong thing day to day? Yeah. I think that's actually a really good good pickup, though, though, Gar. You're right. It isn't just about communication. It is about behavior. Yep. And if you think about... Um, one of the things, one of the things we do in, in in business and in life in general is we tend to rely very heavily on things like motivation and discipline. You know, whatever change, whether I want to exercise, whether I want to be, you know, uh, spend more time with my kids, whether I want to, you know, be more motivated at work, we tend to rely on, you know, motivation, discipline, either either geeing ourselves up or beating ourselves up. And both of them are good strategies, but they're short term strategies. Like no one's motivated all the time no one's disciplined in every area of their life and it always breaks down and what we've found is that behavioral design works better than discipline in other words if you can design a system that has a bias towards success and just as critically a bias away from failure success is more likely to show up so if you look for you know what are the behavioral breakage points in a process and think okay well how can i ameliorate that how can i how can i create a human nature hack that disrupts that that failure point, and actually creates an um, or engineers a, a, that bias towards success. 
that's a more useful way of thinking rather than saying, well, my people never do that. Well, if they never do it, then there's clearly a problem in the design. So, so what can you do to it to, to shift that that at a behavioral level? And the other thing is we tend to think that behavior follows engagement. In other words, if I engage you enough, you'll behave the right way. But it actually works the other way as well. It's like an equation. Behavior actually leads engagement. So if you if you allow people to perform more effectively, they start to think, well, I'm good at this, and their engagement levels go up. So it's a virtuous circle. You actually need to work both sides of the equation. Yep, no, I definitely get that. You, there's something you you mentioned there around kind of design being better than motivation uh, or discipline. Uh, definitely agree with that. There's a thing that we've been talking about in our industry a little bit more and more recently, which is around the, the value of context. Um, and I feel like that context feeds into design. So it's you know an example might be somebody goes to do something, and based on the context of the action they're about to take, uh, you know, using a technology or a platform. There's a contextual message rather than just a generic, um, you know, please don't do that or that's dangerous. But you know, something much more contextual with the idea that you're you're sort of driving them towards good behavior. For you, any thoughts on like the value of context in design when it comes to that kind of um, pushing, you know, the biases towards success? Yeah, yeah, it's hugely important. It's actually backed up by psychological science. So we okay. used to think that that people did the right thing or people were good people because of their character, right? Um, and then there was a, a group of, of psychological scientists called the situationists who basically looked at creating situations where they tested what made people do the right thing. So this is they're quite famous experiments. There's the Zimbardo experiment from Stanford University uh, called the Stanford Prison Experiment, where he took a group of students and some were made guards, some were made prisoners. And another one is the Milgram Experiment, which is the quite famous, the electric shock, where, where you know, the subject was told to give someone else an electric shock. What They were an actor, but they actually kept dialing up the shock until the person was actually unconscious, right? Now, what those two things told us was really nice, good people, and in fact, people who were very likely to obey instructions, within about, you know, a matter of hours, they were essentially becoming Nazis. You know, they were behaving in an incredibly immoral and amoral way. And and so that was a real, real shift in, I mean, the interesting thing is they they always bring those two things up as um, as, uh, ethically... um, kind of sketchy yeah. psychological experiments, but they're the most quoted psychological experiments in the entire field. So clearly, you know, the best the best experiments are actually a little bit ethically dodgy. But what they showed was the context mattered enormously. Yep. You know, it wasn't just a matter of character. These, you know, they took, for instance, the Stanford Prison Experiment, they were highly educated Californians, so very liberal, progressive, you know, students probably from reasonably well off, you know, if they're studying at Stanford, you know, they've got to be able to pay the college fees. So probably well-educated, reasonably well off from good families, and yet they had to shut the experiment down because it degenerated so quickly and the guards became so preoccupied by their own sense of power and the, and the, and the, the ones who were, who were the prisoners became so demoralised and shut down by the experiment that it was it was absolutely extraordinary. It shocked everyone and it's it's... What we what it taught us was context is much at least as important as character in determining whether we do the right thing or not. Um, 
and and I guess the you know the frightening part of that is is we tend to think oh uh, freedom and and freedom of thought is a really good thing and it is. However, it's very easily corrupted and we're very easily swayed by the context that we're in. And it's why, you know, mob mentality becomes so problematic so quickly. So if you go to a football game or something and, and something breaks out, you know, that will degenerate really quickly because, it, because of the context that people are in. So at, at some level, you, what, you're, what you would be trying to do in an organisation is create a good mob mentality, right? So, like, that seems like a much more difficult thing than... And this is probably the point you were making a little bit earlier, sending an email or doing the easy, you know, air quotes communication, but it doesn't really change anything. Any any thoughts on like how long that can take any of the things you can do to create that good sort of social norms, mob mentality, whatever you might want to call it within an organization? I think it's about environmental design as well. So environment, you know, if we assume that environment is a part of context, and it is, you know, if you look at experiments like in New York, they did the... Um, uh, funnily enough, I think it was under Rudy Giuliani, who's, who's sort of of dubious fame now. But at the time, they did they had a, a zero tolerance on trains leaving the station with graffiti on them. So they had a zero tolerance on, on minor crime. And what they found was, you know, the trains being cleaner, the rubbish being collected, actually had a change on, on behaviour, like the crime dropped because small things were picked up. So I think that's a really... Um, a really useful um, uh, live study, you know, not just an experiment. That you know that that tested the way human beings behave. So if you can create an environment of responsibility, um, that becomes really important. Now, now it's getting the balance right. There's a there's another um, uh, another uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Sidney Ecker, who who does a whole lot of stuff on on safety and. And what's the right amount of safety? And one of the things that uh, he's found is that if if you make the environment too safe, injuries go through the roof, but deaths decline. And if you make it not safe, deaths go up and injuries decline. And what he's found is if you make things too safe, people's awareness drops. So they become okay. less yeah. careful about what they're doing. Now, now you might say, well, you know, injuries worse than death, but these are serious injuries. So, yeah. so there's there's kind of striking this this correct balance. I mean, it, re- it reminds me of um, there's an Australian comedian Steve Hughes who di- who who uh, who used to who used to do a bit about you know having too much safety in society and you know it's a nanny state. And he said, you go to Amsterdam, you know, you're walking past the canal. There's no railings. They're just like, mate, is your bike wet? Yeah, well, you're on the wrong bit. And so I think there's that, there's it's striking the balance right so that you get the right amount of situational awareness with enough design and environment focused on, on generating the, the correct result. But but environment is 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 one of the most influential parts of, of, of success. And in fact, you know, if you want to find um, you know the highest number of self-made billionaires, you go to a really rich country. And you go to a suburb where there's lots of private school educated kids who've who've had access to university, and we go, well, you know, were they just better and brighter than the poor kids? Well, no, they were just in an environment that that supported and encouraged them and pointed them in that direction. So, you know, we like to say we're self-made, but we're very much the product of our environment. 
Yep, uh, you're preaching the converted on that one. Um, a little, little bit of a pivot here. There's a guy called uh, Bruce Schneier, who you may be aware of. He's sort of a, a speaker in our industry, kind of fairly well-respected uh, guy. He's been around for kind of decades now. And he's got this quote um, around trust. So you know, he says you can't can't trust anyone, but you're forced to trust everyone. And he's obviously talking more at a technology level. You know, our company talks to your company. We connect digitally, and you know, we're kind of forced to do that in today's kind of commercial environments. Um, uh, now, trust at a human level, I know, is something that you have talked about and, and certainly talked about in, uh, a couple of weeks ago in the, the talk you gave at the Connect event. Um, there's, I'm guessing there's overlap there, right? There's, there's human trust and how that impacts cybersecurity, and then there's also the technology kind of um, overlay to that. How have you seen human trust change over the years? And then, you know, maybe a, a follow-up question to that is, like, how does, how does that actually impact in cybersecurity? Uh, that's a that's a really good question, actually. I think some of it hasn't changed at all. Some of it is still very, very basic and 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 almost primitive in terms of how we build trust. However, there's been a trust decay in recent years, so we've become less trusting of authority. I mean, interestingly, Australians, on the whole, are more trusting than say other cultures. You know, you know, considering the European um, beginning of Australia was, you know. A bunch of convicts on a, on a ship, you would think trust would be quite low in this country, but it's actually trust for authority is actually quite high. However, what we've seen is is a, sort of a democratization of information as well, not just of, of leadership, where I've now got access to information I couldn't get access to before. I can now see further inside organizations than ever before. So we've got a situation where um, uh, large organizations uh, are being found out, you know, committing corporate crime. We, you know, all of a sudden now our, our, our politicians are being found guilty of, of, of sexual assault and, and corruption. The religious organisations, you know, have been found out to be supporting terrorists or, or abusing children. We've got, um, you know, the big banks, you know. So all of these big pillars of society yeah. have, we've sort of gone, okay, well, it turns out they're not who we thought they were. And so this this level of trust has has really decayed, and then we have what Eli Parissa calls the filter bubble, where where social media and and search engines have an algorithm that feed our own opinion back to us. So that actually amplifies the the, the Dunning Kruger effect. So the Dunning Kruger effect is basically most you know a lot of people are so stupid that they're too stupid to realize how stupid they are. But it also works the other way. It means that if if I'm not particularly bright and I get uh, proof that my position is right, I'm not smart enough to know that that proof is is probably biased and not very um, uh, cohesive. And I actually think I'm smarter than I am. So we have this, this decrease in, in trust and sort of this um, an inflated sense of correctness or rightness, and, and that becomes problematic as well. However, the, the basics of trust um, in terms of if you have a look at why gossip evolved in, in, in human society. So gossip evolved as a way of building trust. So, so I share an intimacy with you, Guy. You share an intimacy with me. Now we've got something on each other, so trust ensues. So that's why a leader or, 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 or someone who can be vulnerable and share an intimacy or share a failing is more likely to engender trust. So if I share something that's an inconvenient truth and you go, wow, if Dan's telling the truth about that, why would he lie about something else? So it has to be, you have to be um, 
truthful or honest beyond expectations and then trust it. So that's a very, that's a very primitive human way that trust um, develops. And it's also one of the reasons why um, we've seen trust sort of go down in, the, in our political process because there's so much political spin and so much trying to look good, whereas, in fact, a willingness to have a mea culpa and say, I was wrong, I did the wrong thing, that's actually more engaging from a, from, at a human point of view. And, and how do you think uh, politicians don't get that? Because it seems really like grating for many people, I'm sure, when they, they, they sort of realise it's all spin and you can't get a straight answer from politicians. I would say sometimes corporate leaders too are, are guilty of that, at that, you know, big tech will tend to spin, you know, their their value they're providing to the world. It feels like we all we all sort of fundamentally get that because I, I totally agree. When when people are vulnerable and honest, I think you can tell, right, there's a, there's an, I mean, not to sound like Brené Brown, but there's an authenticity there. Like there's a thing you can feel as a human being and it's very powerful but it feels like people don't tap into that no well look and i think it's it, w- one of the problems with the political classes is, is it's exactly that you know it's kind of whether they're from the left or the right it's okay well which which single sex pub private school did you go to yep. you know you know and it's whether they're on the left or the right and it's the same it, it's 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 the same around the world you know we see this typical kind of person occupying both sides of the major parties. You know, you get some outliers in some of the some of the minor parties, but they're, you know, and I've met a lot of the political classes. I've met, you know, a few of former prime ministers, well, and sitting prime ministers in this country. And it's almost, you know, you get slightly different policies, but it's almost all in the same tone of voice. And so I don't think you get a lot of... Um, a lot of diversity, and I mean I mean diversity in the real sense. It's one of the one of the problems with with diversity is it's very much treated as a you know a corporate box to be ticked. You know, well, you know, we we hired a couple of foreigners and some women, so box ticked. We're we're, we're heaps diverse. And you go, well, yeah, that's good, but that's not real diversity. Real diversity is is a diversity of cognitive styles. You know, oftentimes I'll meet I'll meet. Um, a leadership team and they'll say they're diverse and it's they're all saying the same thing just with different accents in different vocal pitches so it's not you know they're not actually thinking in a in a very different way so i think that we're very um tokenistic in our search for diversity and i think that's that's a real problem you know there's there's a whole raft of studies that tell us that the more diverse a team is and the more openly they debate uh different points of view the higher the collective iq so diversity is actually, it shouldn't be seen of as a corporate social responsibility thing. It should be seen as a uh, as a risk mitigation and a bottom line protector. Um, but we tend to think of it, oh, it's the right thing to do as opposed to being the smart thing to do. And I think that's, I think that can be a problem as well. Is there, is there something there uh, touching on trust and diversity? Because I think one of the things I understand, if, if you know, correctly or incorrectly, is that a lot of uh, xenophobia, racism comes from fear and a lack of trust. So, you know, fundamentally, those two things have to exist in an organization together. You can't, you presumably couldn't really have truly true diversity of thinking or even gender, um, origin, ethnicity, any of that stuff without trust at some level or a level of confidence in the organization and the people. Yeah, and look, I think, but but again, uh, you know, I, we, we tend to think of ourselves as incredibly highly evolved, and we're really not. Yeah. You know, if you have a look at, in, you know, in this country, Indigenous Australians got the got the vote in the 1960s. 
you know, the decade I was born in. Mm. Women got the vote in this country, you know, 100 years ago. That's one old lady's lifetime, you know, and universal suffrage was only about 50 or 60 years before that. So, you know, even men didn't have a right to a, you know, all men didn't have a right to a vote 200 yep. years ago. So this is very, very recent history that we've let, we've let anyone other than the ruling classes have a voice. And, and we tend to think that we're, we're incredibly evolved, but we're all making very primitive decisions. And the truth is, you know, xenophobia and racism is actually based in our, in our, the most primitive part of our brain. It's a survival brain. You know, 300 years ago, if someone showed up, you know, in a boat on your, on your shores, you know, they weren't there for tourism. You know, you know, it's, you know, he's called William the Conqueror, not William the just here for the tourism and the backpacking. You know, the the, the fact is most of our history is violent conflict, you know, and we were, it was actually quite sensible to have a reasonable amount of suspicion of someone who came from somewhere else, who looked different, who spoke different. Now, the problem is, is we're running pre-20th century software in a 21st century world, you know, and our brains are still wired for that. You know, it's why, you know, if you have a look at some of the, the, the responses around fear, people experience fear of speaking up in a meeting at work the same way they experience fear in the wild when an animal's attacking. Now, that's not a you know that's not a, a situation that that actually requires that level of response. But we're still running that you know as I said pre twentieth century software, and the same thing happens at a at a human level. Um, however, again, the, the, this this idea that if you align value with values, your value with their values, it's it's exactly the same for for how you. Um, diminish xenophobia and diminish racism. And if you have a look at, you know, particularly um, if you have a look at the Greek and Italian community, say, in Australia, from, say, the 1950s to today, what they did very successfully was use humour to um, to reduce the barriers or, or the, the the mistrust that was between different communities. So... You know, I remember when I was a, when I was a kid, there were certain words that you would never say because they were considered, in, you know, incredibly racist. Yep. However, um, a lot of that's been sort of diminished by that community taking ownership of it, of some of those words and 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 changing the meaning. And and the other thing was they demonstrated how much more we had in common versus how much we had that wasn't in common. And I think that that's part of the way we build trust is, is if you, if someone sees that you have a common, um, uh, a, a common sense of value, that's, that's what you can build alignment around. And I think the other thing that's, that's part of that is if, if you, you, you get to build trust by fighting on behalf of a community for which you, you don't have a vested interest. So, so I'll give you an example of that. We, um, I, I used to do a lot of work on um, uh, preventing men's violence against women. And what was interesting was I would get less pushback from um, commentators than, say, a woman making the same argument might. And the reason was 
a woman arguing against violence against women obviously has a vested interest. But for me, I didn't have a vested interest. And even though we're making exactly the same point, there's a psychological effect where if I'm arguing for something that I don't have a personal win in, now obviously I do, I have a personal win in whether we live in a safe society. But at a psychological level, there's that, there's that thinking, well, if you're arguing for something that you don't have a vested interest in, that's one way that you can build trust. And that might be at a commercial level as well. If you think about John Simon, when Aussie Home Loans la- launched in the marketplace, now, obviously, he was building his business, but he was seen as having a fight on behalf of, of um, home mortgage owners against the big banks. So he was fighting on behalf of someone other than himself. So that's another way that, you know, we, we build trust at a social and at a community level as well. Yep. Fascinating uh... Yeah, there's so much there. I think we're, we're about to run, run out of time, unfortunately. I've got maybe one more question, and I'll be honest with you. I was in two minds whether to include this one because it feels a little bit uh, a little bit sort of touchy. But, you know, we were in this age of participation medals and, you know, everyone kind of gets the pat on the back for doing everything, it seems like. And um, one of the things that you've called out and, and that you talk about is this sort of idea that there is a very large variance in the, the intelligence levels of people. And you make the point that, you know, 50% of Australians are below average intelligence, which I think many people will chuckle at and, and worry about. Um, but it, it has a really important, um, It's it, I think it's an important part of this conversation, but it feels like maybe we shouldn't really have because it will play into how decisions get made in the moment, whether somebody's potentially intelligent or not. Um, and it, it's a real minefield in, in a workplace environment, as you can well imagine, right? It's one of those things that you just you sort of don't really get to talk about. You know, as, as a f- sort of final um, piece of commentary, like what, what are the ways that security leaders or leadership in general can tackle like how people make good decisions um, if they're just somebody who's not maybe wired that way? Yeah, well, my, Kieran and I, my business partner, Kieran and I wrote a book in 2014 called Selfish, Scared and Stupid, which was about the fact that our survival brain, the most primitive part of our brain, makes all of our initial decisions. Um, and it's it's required to it, what keeps us alive. And at the time, people said, oh, that's a bit cynical, isn't it? And then, you know, 2020 happened and the pandemic and then people went, oh, yeah, you should really re-release that book. It actually makes sense now. Um, but I think it's... It's, it's not so much that people are unnecessarily stupid, although huge amounts of them are, clearly. Um, but it's actually, you know, and, and again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing George Carlin, you know, the famous American comedian who said, think about how dumb the average person is and then remember half of them are dumber than that. Um, but again, that's based on the standardised mean. If you, actually, if you actually look at a pre-standardised median or the pre-standardised mode, it's actually worse than 50%, but let's not get into the statistics on it. What, what I'm really getting at is we tend to have an optimism bias. In other words, we tend to design our systems for our best people on, our, on their best day. And even our best people have a terrible day. They have a sick child at home or they have a fight with their spouse in the morning or, or they're just not feeling particularly well. So even our best people have an off day. So I think what we need to do is to engineer with failure in mind, you know, engineer our systems, understanding that breakage will happen. And I think a good example of that is I was in, um, I was in Thailand uh, a number of years ago with Richard Decretney, who's the pilot who landed QF-32, and it was the first time he'd ever given the speech. And what was really interesting was is, is Richard was very... Um, 
very humble about what he did. And he did, what he did was actually really heroic. And, and again, that's another example of trust. Like he over-communicated. He'd shared more information more, more constantly and more consistently than anyone had done before. And he's, they've actually changed emergency protocols for pilots now as a result. But the thing that was really interesting was he said the plane refused to fall out, refused to fall out of the sky. In other words, there was so much engineering that so much went wrong and yet it still stayed in the air. Like, you know, it wasn't one thing went wrong, lots of things went wrong. And yet most of us design our systems with like a 1% or 2% error rate, and if we get 2% failure, it drops and it fails. And in my experience, that's not nearly enough. I think so. Again, it's not it's not necessarily about really being really judgmental about people and saying they're stupid, although that is hilarious and fun. I think what it's really about is understanding that um, expecting peak perfection from everyone every day is probably an optimistic um, place to be. And actually, we need to decide how do we design design for reality? How do we design our systems? so that even our worst employee can get the result that we need them to without having to change who they are fundamentally. A phenomenal uh, part, I think, to to finish the conversation in because um, I think yeah, we, we've struggled to change the people, so uh, that clearly hasn't worked, so we need to, to kind of rethink how we do that. Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, speak to you today. So, so grateful that you've taken the time out to have a conversation. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure, Dan. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much to Dan for joining us. And as always, thank you for listening to the Get Subrazilian podcast. Jump into our back catalog of episodes and like, subscribe, and please do leave us a review. For now, stay safe and I look forward to catching you on the next episode. Hold up. 